following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, we're going to be covering a, a lengthy section of Scripture this morning, so it's especially important for you to have a Bible with you uh, so that you can follow along. We do have Bibles available to you uh, on the table in the lobby. Feel free to take one, take it home, keep it as our gift to you. We just passed the halfway point in the gospel according to Mark, not just the halfway point, but the hinge point, and we're in the middle of a discourse on discipleship. So Jesus is speaking and he's pressing home the radical implications of belonging to his kingdom. This morning, we're going to hear him speaking in an especially bracing and, and direct manner. 
But as we're going to see, he's doing it because he loves us. So whatever you believe, uh, wherever you're coming from this morning, however you're doing spiritually, you and I, I'm convinced, we, we need the smelling salt of this passage. Here's what I think is the, the main idea of Mark chapter 9. Wake up to the seriousness of your sin. Wake up to the seriousness of your sin. If you coddle it now, you'll regret it forever. Wake up to the seriousness of your sin. If you coddle it now, you'll regret it forever. We're going to think about that main idea in three points as we make our way through the three sections of this passage. Uh, First of all, be humble. We'll see that in verses 30 to 37. Second, be generous. It's verses 38 to 41. And finally, be vigilant. Verses 42 to 50. Be humble. Be generous. Be vigilant. First of all, be humble. Verse 30. Look there. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they didn't understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. This is the second time Jesus has predicted his death and resurrection. The first was in chapter 8. This one's chapter 9. The next one will be, and the last one will be chapter 10. But whereas the first prediction, if you remember from the last chapter, emphasized the necessity of his death, which scandalized Peter, this one focuses on the certainty of his death. Look again at the language, verse 31. The Son of Man is is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. This, these are the words of a man who is in utter control of his fate. Verse 33, they, they came to Capernaum. When Jesus was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they'd argued about who loved Jesus the most. No. They kept quiet because on the way they'd argued about who was the greatest. I mean, can you, can you feel their awkwardness right now? The kind of deafening silence? I mean, they're, they're mortified that Jesus has asked them and outed them, right? They're, they're mortified at the ridiculousness of the answer. After everything they've watched Jesus do, healing the sick, raising the dead, stilling storms, walking on water, and after hearing him just say he's marching toward betrayal, arrest, and an agonizing death, what's the topic of conversation? Hey guys, which one of us do you think is most impressive? Let's rank ourselves. That's the natural thing to do right now. I mean, it's, it's laughable. It's, it's cringy. It's like us. 
I mean, how often do we angle for a foot forward? Angle for attention, jockey for recognition, even within the very family of God. How often, if we're honest, do we have pretty much 2020 vision when it comes to looking at others' faults, but pretty blurry vision when it comes to looking at our own? What I want you to see here in, in Mark 9 is that, that none of this nonsense which we roll our eyes at, we scoff at it until we start to look in the mirror, right? But none of this nonsense blindsided Jesus. He knew full well that this is how these guys would turn out, and he wanted them anyway. He chose them anyway. This is who he came to lead. This is who he came to die for. And that should encourage us this morning because the distance between us and them is uncomfortably slim. Verse 35, sitting down, Jesus called the 12. You don't always want Jesus to be sitting down. Sitting is his power position. When he sits down and calls you over, you know you're going to get a talking to. Sure enough, he calls his disciples over and looks them in the eye. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. This is radically counterintuitive and, and frankly uncomfortable to hear. I mean, it, it doesn't, if we're honest, have the kind of nuance we'd prefer. If we got to be editors of the Bible, we would edit this sentence. Because Jesus doesn't simply say, anyone who wants to be first should get near the back of the line. I mean, that would be challenging enough. But he says, you've got to be at the back already. And then he goes even further and says, and you must be a servant of all. All. Why is that something we'd want to edit? Well, because we're all of us already good at serving people. Do you realize that? You're already good at serving people, a certain kind of people. We, we're all fine with being servants of some. We all have a list of people that we're more than happy to serve, but the common denominator, if we're honest, if we were to, if we were to honestly write down our lists of people that we're more than happy to serve, that we would do without even a second thought, and we held our lists up and we compared them, the common denominator is that no name on the lists would, ever, I mean, every name on the list would be able to do something for us in return, and no name on the list would be like what Jesus is about to talk about here, which is why he offers us this illustration. Verse 36. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me doesn't welcome me, but the one who sent me. The point of this object lesson is not, look, disciples, how cute this kid is. No, the point of the object lesson is, look how insignificant and small this kid is. See, in ancient societies, 
children had no status. They, they couldn't help you advance. I mean, today, kids, as difficult as they can be, can actually help you advance in the way they couldn't in ancient society because they can be fodder for your social media page. <laughs> but not in the ancient world. Children were insignificant and expendable. And Jesus says, you're discussing greatness? Is that what I hear? You're discussing greatness? You want to be great? Embrace insignificance. You have a lot to learn from a child like this. Because until you realize that you too are lowlier and less impressive than you think, and until you're ready to embrace those who can't give you anything in return, who can't make you look good, then you will continue to know nothing of true greatness. Honor people like this, Jesus says, and in so doing, you will be honoring me. The application of this passage is, is more than simply, therefore, treat children well. But it's not less than that. I mean, it's not less than that. The reality is that the children among us here in this church and in our families are precious in the sight of God, even if, even when they can feel like a hindrance. And Jesus says, you know what? When they do, when it's difficult, when it can feel like your life is inconvenienced or made miserable, Jesus says, that's good for you. In our members' covenant at RCBC, at RCBC, we all made this promise. We've all made this promise. We will endeavor as the family of Christ to bring up the children under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. What a stewardship. What an honor. What an opportunity we have to see, to notice, to go out of our way to encourage the little ones among us to get to know their names, to, to learn one interesting fact about their lives, to, to bring a smile to their face. Uh, let's make this a church where it's a wonderful thing to be a kid, where, where kids love and relish the memories they had here at RCBC. What if we saw serving in children's ministry not as some daycare service that inconveniences us once a month, but as a strategic outpost where we can plant gospel seeds that by grace will endure, something we get to participate in for his glory. What is one concrete change? It's worth just all thinking about this individually, perhaps talking about it over lunch, perhaps with friends throughout the week. What is one small concrete change you could make in your life this week that would better position you to serve those, children or not, serve those who can't give you anything in return. A couple months ago in Philippians chapter 2, we thought about the beauty of, remember we called it downward mobility, of racing to the back of the line. Well, this coming week, that's the question. What is one way you could race to the back of the line? Who could you serve this week? Happily, 
without strings attached and not feel the need to subtly let someone else know you did it. Be humble. Number two, be generous. Be generous. Verse 38. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he wasn't one of us. He's like, Jesus, hold up with this in your name stuff. We just saw someone doing that. We just saw someone performing a miracle in your name, but he didn't look familiar. (laughs) Don't worry, we took care of it. It's ironic because the disciples had just failed, if you recall from last week or two weeks ago, they had just failed to drive out a demon because they had failed to pray, and yet here they're already pointing at the, the finger at someone else. They, they have the audacity to point the finger at someone else and say, whoa, 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 we regret to inform you you can't do that good thing because you don't belong to us. You don't remind us of ourselves. You're not in our group, to which Jesus basically responds, yes, he is. Verse 39, do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone, that is even someone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. He's saying, if if someone's ministering in my name, that is for my glory, according to my word, then they have understood something. They've come to understand that the kingdom of God has arrived on earth in me. And so even if they're not a carbon copy of you, you should be celebrating them, not sneering at them. We live in an age in which many, many churches don't take theology seriously and everything, therefore, gets reduced to lowest common denominator Christianity, right? Whatever will be easiest to swallow, whatever will attract the most people, whatever will work. And so pragmatism reigns supreme. Pragmatism is in the driver's seat and theology has to ride in the back. And and we're right to reject that approach to ministry, to resist a kind of doctrinal minimalism. How little can we possibly believe and still be okay? We're right to reject that. But a passage like this also confronts us and challenges us to resist doctrinal sectarianism. The the mindset that unless there's uh, someone is a clone of us, then we're kind of too pure to have anything to do with them. In his excellent book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, don't you just want to read that book based on that title? Finding the Right Hills to die on the case for theological triage, Gavin Ortland makes this observation, quote, if our identity is riding on our differences with other believers, we will tend to major in the study of differences. 
we may even find ourselves looking for faults in others in order to define ourselves. And then he writes, quote, Our zeal for theology, our zeal for theology must never exceed our zeal for our actual brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, you're too rigid and prideful if you can't bring yourself to see and recognize and celebrate good gospel work and other Christian traditions and churches. This is why the headline page, it's been this way since day one, the the headline on our priorities page on our website, which I emphasize in every membership class, the very first thing before any of the distinctives about our church are listed, the very first thing you're going to read is this. The most important thing about River City Baptist Church is not what makes us distinct. The most important thing about RCBC is not what makes us distinct. The most important thing about us is what we share in common with every other true church. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What makes this challenging, though, I would argue, especially in a cultural climate like ours, is that we're living in a hyper-polarized, hyper-suspicious, hyper-tribalized age. And therefore, we can be tempted to balkanize, to divide over peripheral, peripheral things rather than standing together in the gospel to resist Satan's schemes and to advance the mission of God. I was struck by this very phenomenon while reading actually about World War II. So uh, in her book, A Woman of No Importance, the untold story of the American spy who helped win World War II. Now, doesn't that subtitle make you want to read that book? Uh, Sonia Purnell uh, recounts the incredible story of an unsung war hero named Virginia Hall. Hall was not a likely candidate for this. She was an American living in uh, Europe, At the dawn of the war, she was disabled with only one leg, uh, and yet she managed to sneak into France and become one of the masterminds of the resistance movement there. Now, as some of you will know, when the Nazis invaded and occupied Paris, many French people surrendered and and even started to collaborate with the Nazis, with with the enemy. But as was the case in in other uh, Nazi-occupied countries, there was this underground swell of resistance, people who refused to bow the knee to Hitler. Now, this is the stuff of, of inspiration, inspiration, right? I, I get chills just talking about it. And you would think, you would think that among those French resistors, under the looming shadow of the Third Reich, that that little community of French resistors would be the tightest-knit family on earth. However, Purnell writes, quote, Resistance in France was more factional than ever. But Virginia Hall was willing to work with anyone who would help her defeat the Nazis. She tried hard to bring the warring French tribes together, but often it was impossible, and both disliked the fact that she worked with their rival factions. 
they were more accustomed to putting bounties on each other's heads, while others engaged themselves in vengeance killings and summary trials against suspected collaborators. Indeed, there was so much fighting between the French themselves that some historians refer to this time as a French civil war playing out as a kind of subplot while the European war reached its climax. Isn't that tragic? Rather than keeping differences in perspective and locking arms to defeat their common, colossal enemy, intramural squabbles persisted. You didn't need a German U-boat to torpedo the French resistance. They almost did it themselves. How much more tragic, how much more ludicrous when Satan gets a foothold among Christians by convincing us that our war is with one another against flesh and blood rather than against the dark forces of the spiritual realm, the principalities and powers of this dark world, as the Apostle Paul says. Brothers and sisters, this life is just simply too short. And our shared future, everyone who truly names the name of Christ, our shared future is too bright, too radiant to waste our days being conformed to the pattern of this world, to feeding the perpetual outrage machine. Let's resolve at this church to rise above the the sectarian spirit of our age and and, and to resolve to lean into each other, to lean into one another and into other gospel minded churches on the basis of a shared identity. Track with me here a shared identity that is deeper than any of the categories that divide our world. Well, before we move on to the, the final section, Let's just, let's just make sure we're, we're following Mark's train of thought, okay? We, we've thought about hills to die on. We've thought about World War II, okay? I'm preaching the Bible up here. This is why I said all of that, and this is how it all fits together. Do you see how arguments about who's the greatest, verses 33 to 37, and who's not even worthy to be among us? Verses 38 to 41 arise from the same kind of heart. I mean, the same impulse that tempts us to elevate ourselves above other disciples, other members, is the same impulse that will tempt us to elevate ourselves above other churches. A self-important spirit leads to a sectarian spirit. May the Lord protect RCBC from it. Be, gener- uh, be humble, be generous, and third and finally, be vigilant. Verse 42, if anyone, this is Jesus still talking, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Here, Jesus pivots from holding the child and speaking about physical little ones to talking about spiritual little ones. That is, any believer. It's a a term of endearment. And the reason we know he's making a shift is because he clarifies right here in verse 42 that he's talking only about 
those who, quote, believe in me. And he's saying that to cause a believer to stumble, any believer, but especially, I think, a weak believer, to cause a believer to stumble. And, and by the way, stumble is a strong verb. It's not just a little playground trip, okay? To, to cause someone to stumble is to cause them to fall away from God, to destroy their faith. And Jesus says, if you do that, you're playing with fire. If you do that, you are jeopardizing your own eternal future. And here's the graphic warning he gives to such a person. He says, it would be better if a huge millstone used for grinding grain was tied around your neck and it pulled you down into a watery grave. Remember, for Jews, what did the sea represent? The sea was the place of chaos, the domain of darkness and evil. And so drowning was a particularly horrifying way for a Jew to die. I'm reminded of what Jesus says elsewhere about the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Quote, they tie up heavy burdens. Remember, remember when he says this? They tie up heavy burdens and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. In other words, their pride, their self-important, sectarian spirit is not just crushing others. It's going to drown them under the floodwaters of God's wrath. Jesus then continues, verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life, that is eternal life, maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where? And here he quotes from the very last sentence of the book of Isaiah, referring to God's enemies. Where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. So I'm grateful that we preach expositionally here at this church, we go passage by passage because otherwise I wouldn't choose to preach stuff like this. But God knows better than I do. He knows we need this sober warning and reminder. This is one of the most bracing, terrifying statements in all the Bible about the seriousness of sin and the reality of hell. I mean, just look at what sin is does according to Jesus. Look at what sin does. It hurls people into hell. The wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. This is actually logical if you think about it. If you turn from the ultimate source of love, okay, if you turn from the ultimate source of love, what else is there but disunion? If you turn from the ultimate source of light, what else is there but darkness? If you turn from the ultimate source of life, what else is there but death? Jesus is not calling for literal bodily mutilation. He's speaking hyperbolically. He's using hyperbole to emphasize something 
That is difficult to hyperbolize because it's that serious. And that is the extreme consequences of sin and therefore the extreme measures that we should take in order to avoid its consequences. Nothing in this life, Jesus is saying, what you love with your eyes, what you do with your hands or feet, nothing is worth getting in the way of eternal life. It's not worth it. Three times in this paragraph, Jesus refers to this place called hell. He, he actually does this more than anyone else in the Bible. If your view of Jesus can't account for that, if your view of Jesus uh, doesn't have any room for statements like this, then with all due respect, friend, the problem is not with Jesus. It's with you and your perspective. This is sobering stuff, and it's meant to be frightening because it is real. I mean, no wonder there have been many attempts throughout history to basically air condition hell, all right? So you think of what's sometimes called Christian universalism, the, the belief that Christ will eventually save everyone even if they haven't heard of him or believed in him. Because of God's character and love, the reasoning goes, and I want to be honest, I'm not mocking this. I get it. I get the impulse. But it's an example of elevating human reasoning above the revealed word of God. The reasoning is that because of God's character and love, that there's just no way hell will be populated forever. Surely it's going to eventually be empty. Others in history have advocated for what's called annihilationism. Now, this error is less serious than universalism, but it's still an attempt to air-condition biblical teaching by claiming that unbelievers at death will just be annihilated. That is, snuffed out. They'll cease to exist. And so, hell, though it exists, is just a temporary punishment. But notice, even just from this one passage from the lips of Jesus, this is not a topical sermon on hell. I could be taking you to lots of other places in the Bible just from this one paragraph from the lips of Jesus Christ. We see that hell is a place, a real place of unending, unending misery. Don't take my word for it. Verse 43 the fire never goes out. Verse 48, the worms never stop eating the corpses. It's, it's, a, it's a gruesome image, but, but it's saying that, that, the, that the worms never die because they're never done. The fire and the worms last forever because the punishment is forever. Now, at this point, some revulsion, some objections may well start to arise in your heart, one of which is, come on, preacher, are, are we really in the year 2023 meant to take these images literally? And the answer is, not necessarily. But that's no comfort. Because here's the thing about biblical metaphors. They always fall short of the reality they're trying to describe. 
See, a biblical metaphor attempts to take something that defies human understanding and put it in human language, which means that the metaphor is less than the reality, not more. So even if the fire and the worms and the outer darkness are metaphorical, which I'm inclined to believe they are, the reality will somehow be even worse than the image. But the most shocking thing about hell, friends, is not that the punishment is horrible or that the punishment is forever. The most shocking thing about all of this is that the punishment is right. Fair. Just. Proverbs 28.5 says, Evildoers do not understand justice. That is what is right. But those who seek the Lord will one day understand it fully. You may not be there today. That's okay. But one day you will see reality according to God's perspective. And you will say, Did not the judge of all the earth do right? And sure enough, at the very end of the Bible, the, the great multitude in heaven are not wincing when they see the smoke of hell rising forever and ever. What are they doing? Worshiping. Revelation 19.2, hallelujah, for his judgments are true and just. Not just hallelujah, for I am saved, but hallelujah, for his judgments are true and just just. Friends, I know it's hard to imagine. I'm not, this is not a sermon where the preacher is just kind of browbeating you, okay? This is tough for me as well. But the day is coming when not a single person in this room will view hell as a morally questionable place. And by the way, don't ever think hell is Satan's gig. Don't ever think hell is Satan's production. He's going to hell. He's not running it. A good God is in charge of hell, as I said, because the judge of all the earth will do right. So just as heaven is a divine monument to God's mercy and grace, so hell is a divine monument to God's holiness and justice. The Bible says that he, God, doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. And that's an important truth to internalize. God is love. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, but he is not embarrassed by hell. He is glorified even there as his holiness and justice is displayed. See, it's hard for us to imagine God's wrath and not filter it through our experience with man's wrath right? So it's hard for us not to think, oh, God is wrathful in response to sin. He's flying off the handle. He's overreacting. No, that's how I am, not how God is. See, his wrath is his holy and settled opposition to evil. Hell is not some cosmic overreaction Believe it or not, friends, it is a punishment that fits the crime. Tra track with me here, okay? It's a punishment that fits the crime. 
See, hell is an infinite sentence because it's punishing an infinite crime. And sin is an infinite crime because it's treason against an infinite God. I'll say that again. Hell is an infinite sentence because it's punishing an infinite crime. And sin is an infinite crime because it's treason against an infinite God. As one old Puritan said, there are no little sins because there is no little God. You have never once in your life committed a small sin because you have yet to offend a small God. Which means that the infinite span of hell is not an example of injustice. The infinite span of hell echoes and testifies to the infinite worth of God. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul famously asks believers the most wonderful rhetorical question in the Bible. If you're in Christ, there's not a more precious rhetorical question than if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? But friend, if you're outside of Christ, the, the reverse, I hope you see, is also true. If God is against you, if God is against you because you haven't brought your sin to him, then who can be for you? Supreme holiness cannot peacefully coexist with our sin. Friend, what this passage is pressing on you is this. Name, it's saying name one sin that you cherish that is worth an eternity in hell. One sin that's worth it, and you won't come up with one. That's the message of this passage. The most serious problem facing you every morning, facing you every morning when you wake up is not your bank account this week. It's not your health. It's not your to-do list. It's your rebellion against your creator. But the greatest news you could ever hear, there's nothing you could hear this morning from this church that's more important than this. The greatest news in the universe is that while hell is real and awful and eternal and deserved, it is also avoidable. It's avoidable. You don't have to go there. God's glory and your pride are on a collision course and they will meet at one of two crash sites, hell or the cross. And the good news of the gospel is that 2,000 years ago on that cross, cross, Jesus experienced the condemnation of hell in the place of anyone who comes to him and in faith collapses into his arms. See, the God you've offended happens to also be the God who loves you. The judge before whom you're guilty also happens to be the one who wants to turn your criminal trial into an adoption ceremony and take you home and be your father. He's on a rescue mission, and if you bring your sins to him, you can have confidence that he has taken your sins on himself in the person of his son and has plunged them down to the death they deserve. And if you've done that, if you've embraced Jesus Christ, and if, you're, if, you're, if your future is bright and radiant because you're trusting in Jesus, then God's daily response, even when you sin, is not to say, 
how dare you, how dare you, how dare you, but rather, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And if the judge of all the earth has plunged all your sins into the bottom of the ocean, who the heck are you to doubt his mercy and go trying to bring them back up? As Corey Tinboom, to quote someone else from World War II, as Corey Tinboom once said, God takes our sins, dumps them in the sea, and puts up a sign that says, No fishing allowed. Well, Jesus then concludes verse 49. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? In the ancient world, salt both flavored and preserved. And it, it represented distinctiveness because what makes salt good is that it's not the same as what you put it on. And, and Jesus is saying, hey, your life as a believer should have a distinct flavor You shouldn't be the same as the world around you. It should have a preserving effect against moral decay. But if it doesn't, if you're claiming to be a Christian and your life is bland and redundant, well then, why are you wearing the Jesus jersey? Your witness is worthless. But the key is how Jesus ends verse 50. Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. How have we gone from chop off your limbs lest you get hurled into hell to be at peace with each other? I mean, am I the only one who feels a little whiplash? Am I the only one who thinks this is a tad anticlimactic for a preacher? But friends, and I say this as I, as I conclude, This is why verses 30 to 50, as I trust you can tell, I could have happily done in three sermons that I've done in one. This is why it's one unit. Do you see the thread that stitches it all together? The disciples bickering about being the greatest was plunging all of them into sin. Rebuking a man for doing ministry in Jesus' name was plunging all of them into sin. And so Jesus ends by saying, don't you see the consequences of sin are not just eternal, but right here and right now, they're corporate. Did you notice that Jesus began his discussion on hell by focusing on how your sin affects others? How the stakes are high because you might just lead someone else to stumble. It's not anticlimactic at all. Your warfare against sin is what makes peace with others possible. Jesus says, no sin is worth going to hell for. Be vigilant. Be deadly serious in your fight against sin. Why, Jesus? So that you can have each other over for dinner. So you can show up to church together and have love in your hearts and not be suspicious toward one another. So that you can stop jockeying for status or competing about which of you is the greatest so that your heart doesn't shrivel because you're so insular and exclusive about who God is allowed to use. This afternoon at home, if if you were to see a a pillow on fire, you wouldn't think, Ah, no big deal. I'm just so grateful it's not the whole house. 
No, you, you would take immediate action to put out the fire lest it spread to other rooms. And Jesus is saying, whether we're, t- we're talking about self-importance or sectarianism or any other sin, put the fire out before it burns down the house. And to the degree we do that, beloved, River City Baptist will be in the city of Richmond a bright contrast community, a contrast community defined not by pride, but by countercultural peace. And rather than being eternally regretful because we coddled sin, we'll be eternally grateful because together we sought in the name of Jesus and by the power of his spirit to slay it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for loving us enough to tell us the truth. We thank you for not just telling us what is easy to hear, what is comfortable to hear. We thank you for loving us enough to be honest and frank about what the stakes are, about how serious sin is, about the horror of hell, but above all of that, the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ that is available to any of us who will simply turn from our sin and embrace him. And Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who has yet to do that, has yet to flee their sin and collapse into your arms by faith, Lord, I pray, we pray that they would do so this morning and be forgiven of their sin and know the hope of everlasting life in your presence. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.